The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Our guest today is Dr. Kathy Schlunviles, Professor of English and Director of Asian and American Studies. We discuss identity, Cambodian history during the harrowing killing fields era, immigration politics, and much, much more. Kathy's brilliant, witty, and was really enjoyable to talk with, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as well. It's, it is interesting doctor. that, you know, doctor encompasses so many different yeah. qualifications. Exactly. That it's really, when people say doctor, they mean physician. Like, yes. That's right. That's what comes to mind. Really. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I wish I could. I mean, I was a failure because my... <laughs> I started out as physics and chemistry and then ended up in English, so my parents were <laughs> profoundly disappointed in did, my course of study. Did you have family pressure, too? I had a lot because I was a first-generation college mm. student. My parents had barely graduated from high school, mm -hmm. and you know, being the daughter of immigrants, they understandably thought that an education should lead to a profitable vocation. Sure. So... That's good. My my brother, I have a twin brother, and he's a detective for the LAPD. Wow. Oh, I know. He's, I completely cannot imagine him as a first responder. But he worked sex crimes, and his job was to act like a 13-year-old girl online. And then now he's in internal affairs. Whoa. Oh, man. So he'd catch these online predators. Exactly. But, like he, um, but prior to that, he was a Buddhist monk, and he got fired. <laughs> And he wanted to be an EMT. fired as a Buddhist monk. Yes, That's because possible? he, oh, it is. Apparently, he kept um, having relations with his girlfriend in the monastery. Mm -hmm. So then he got fired, and he wanted to be an EMT, but the waiting list was too long, so he became a cop. <laughs> it's not a bad, you know, secondhand <laughs> choice. <laughs> it's, but it's horrible. What a journey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a journey, yes. <laughs> he is, uh, yeah my twin but that and people always ask are you identical and i say no he's my brother mm. see different parts yeah. Um, yeah so what i heard you in uh ali oshinsky's uh, people oh, are professors okay. two podcast and your family history is quite remarkable i was wondering if you could explain if you don't mind okay. just based on the idea of identity and this idea of you know first generation in america and who your ancestors were oh good um well so Thank you for listening to that. I really love Allie. But, yeah. um, so I was actually born right outside of uh, Royal Thai Udorn Air Force Base. It was in 1974, so I'm outing my age here. <laughs> and it was uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War, but that Air Force Base was significant because it was the headquarters for the CIA-owned Air America fleet. Mm -hmm. So for most people who are not familiar with the war, but maybe familiar with some of the imagery, those black helicopters actually came out of that particular base. Um, and the base was also known for training pilots who were Laotian, Cambodian, and Thai and doing illicit bombing campaigns over Laos and North Vietnam. So as my father, um, and I may have mentioned this, like he recently passed away. I'm sorry. Um, thanks, like he had stage four brain cancer, oh, the wow. same cancer that John McCain had. Mm. But uh, my father was stationed there to load munitions onto B-49s that flew over the region. But my mother was Cambodian, and she had an affair with an American GI. 
and she had two mixed race kids and it just so happened that my adoptive father and mother were stationed there and they adopted us and my adoptive mother's Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, she was 11 when the bomb at Nagasaki was dropped. Uh, so um, this was something that was revealed over the course of a lifetime. I didn't really piece this together until much later, but uh, none of the women in her family could have children. Yeah. So my parents had spent 13 years of their marriage looking for children, and they found two mixed-race children. So I came to the United States, and for the longest time, you know, I was I grew up on military bases, and then we ended up in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. which is where I grew up. And I used to have a very strong Texas accent. Really? I did, yes. And it only comes out when I've been drinking or I'm angry. <laughs> but when I went to Massachusetts, students made fun of my accent, and I could not understand anybody in the Northeast. Sure. <laughs> so I dropped the accent. But So I grew up in Austin, Texas. And for the longest time, again, I thought that I was Thai because of the location of my birth. And it wasn't until I went to graduate school, um, I had made a joke that the only movie about Thai people was The King and I. And my father said, no, your movie is actually The Killing Fields. And so it was the first time that... Cambodian movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and that was a bit of an identity crisis. But I went to graduate school for Victorian literature. I never took an ethnic studies course. Um, I went to the University of Texas. And it wasn't until I took a course on ethnic American literature that I actually thought of something different and I saw myself in the literature. So mm -hmm. I ended up pursuing Asian American studies and that's what I do here. Yeah, so how tied to the, your Thai identity were you? And, and then did your interest in Cambodian history occur once you realized you were truly Cambodian? So I grew up in a Japanese-American household, mm -hmm. um, and I do not speak Japanese. I know angry Japanese, so if somebody <laughs> yells at me, I know exactly how to respond. But So I had never really delved into even that Japanese-American sensibility because, you know, I grew up in predominantly non-Asian-American spaces. Mm -hmm. So even in Texas, like, the racial dynamic is black, white, and Latino. So, you know, there wasn't really much of a space for Asian-American in that. And my full name is Kathy Jean Schlund. Now it's vile, so that is not a very Asian-identified right. name. Um, but I think that to go to the question that you asked, I, I had always known that I was of Asian descent, but being Cambodian was a profound crisis because I had no idea about the history. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the culture, and it was something that I actually avoided for a very long time in my own work. And it wasn't until I was working on a dissertation that compared Jewish and Asian American narratives. Um, like So it began with the idea that Jewish Americans have been pitched as model minorities, right? They excel socioeconomically. The same is true for Asian Americans, the stereotype. Mm -hmm. It was also because of my love of Neil Diamond. So I really like Neil Diamond, and uh, so I was looking at the jazz singer in Coming to America. That was actually the impetus for the dissertation. But I had one chapter on Holocaust narratives and Cambodian genocide narratives, and I realized that it was really the Cambodian story that resonated. So my first book was on the Jewish and Asian American writing, mm -hmm. but my second book, which was The Labor of Love, was uh, Cambodian American Genocide Remembrance, and I right. started reaching out to Cambodian Americans who are my age 
And we all had a very similar experience, which is that we were either children, toddlers, what have you, during the Killing Fields era. So there was no actual memory of it, but then coming to the United States and seeing the trauma enacted on our respective parents and not being able to fill in those gaps prompted kind of a a journey into that history. Um, The Killing Fields era, if you could describe. Certainly. Um, So between 1975 and 1979, over the course of three years, eight months and 20 days, an estimated 1.7 million Cambodians perished as a result of disease, starvation, forced labor, and execution. This was under the Khmer Rouge regime, which was a very extreme communist regime. So one way to think about this is the Cultural Revolution in China, mm-hmm. kind of those same dynamics, but you know, kind of put within a Cambodian context. So those who were targeted were those who had the most memory of the previous regime. So to give some additional statistics, uh, the 1.7 million is about 25% of the population at the time. And because teachers, civil servants, and artists were targeted, um, so 90% of court musicians and dancers were executed which is obviously a pretty profound number out of, let's see, 550, you know, like doctors, roughly 80 survived. The majority of lawyers and judges were executed. So as the regime was deposed in 1979, only nine remained uh, in country and three fourths of the teachers were either killed or had fled. So um, this is a particular genocide that It wasn't until 2007 that a tribunal was formed, and it wasn't until 2010 that the first Khmer Rouge official was brought to justice, quote-unquote. And that person was Comrade Doik, Mm -hmm. Kyang Gyek Yev, who was the head of S21 prison, which was a detention center where roughly 22,000 were detained and 220 survived. But that history that I've kind of brought together rather quickly is something that took a long time to assemble. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really through interviewing Cambodian American artists, filmmakers, and writers that I was able to kind of develop this alternative story. And that story was based on the fact that in the face of no justice, Mm -hmm. no tribunal, how do you imagine other spaces for justice? Because in Cambodia, there's no nationally sanctioned memorial to the genocide, so the primary sites that are visited, atrocity tourist sites, are actually owned by a Japanese oil company. So it's not really for Cambodians. The sites themselves, I think that we've all seen images of bone, like, you know, kind of the pile of skulls. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are considered antithetical to most Cambodian Buddhist practice. So the ideal treatment of a body is cremation. Mm -hmm. So if you actually let the bones kind of sit like that, um, you know, those become haunted spaces. So the majority of people who visit those spaces are non-Cambodians. So for the Cambodian American artists I interviewed, I asked, you know, where do you find this sense of justice? And the answer was through maybe hip hop, like songs that dealt specifically with Killing Fields era and, you know, drew together parental narratives, relative narratives, etc. So that was actually like what prompted that particular project and I had the opportunity to witness the reading of the first verdict 
in 2010 with Comrade Doik, and um, what was stunning was that even within this tribunal space, out of a you know an arena of 1,500 seats, only 77 had been reserved for Cambodians, and the rest were foreign journalists and mm-hmm. scholars, which kind of highlights, you know, some of the um, the issues around that tribunal. Uh, the last thing I will say is that I was a bit naive. I realized that I was a bit uh, was really U.S. centric in my dealing with that Cambodian case because for most Cambodians who live on a dollar fifty a day, a two hundred twenty eight million dollar tribunal doesn't really do much to try only five people, mm. which is what ended up happening. And in a Buddhist uh, context, you believe in reincarnation. So if somebody has done such awful things during their life, you kind of you, you actually assume that they'll be reincarnated as the lowest of the lowest. So the question is, who's the tribunal for? Mm-hmm. And I did not delve into that um, in my second book, but I've since yeah. revisited that. So what do Cambodians want then as any kind of retribution or action taken? Is it none in, in the face of this beliefs about reincarnation? Exactly. You know, it's really difficult. So this goes back to the fact that I was not raised in a Cambodian-American mm-hmm. household. I don't speak the language. And so I think some of the assumptions I made in that project were based on the fact that I'm an American, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, and I don't have the language skills. Um, But with regard to what Cambodians want in country, there's a sense of symbolic reparation, meaning a memorial or an education site. Um, But part of the difficulty is that you still have former members of the Khmer Rouge in positions of power, namely um, at the prime minister level. So Prime Minister Hun Sen, who's been in power basically since 1998, is a former Khmer Rouge foot soldier. For a lot of Cambodians, like the the question you ask is really interesting because the majority of Cambodians, about 85 percent, were born after the period of the killing fields. So memory is a huge thing. Yeah. So and it's very difficult, as we can kind of imagine, to kind of think that relatives of yours or you know your ancestors could have been involved in such a an awful genocide. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, kind of moving forward, most Cambodians were apathetic about the tribunal. The tribunal was actually much more um, meaningful to, say, international communities invested in, like, developing Cambodia in a neoliberal context. So if you can actually erase that, you know, that genocide history by way of a tribunal, then it's almost like a blank slate Mm -hmm. to kind of bring people in uh, for investment. So, um, So to go to your question, I think that Um, Certainly symbolic reparation in the form of a memorial or education, but it's impossible to kind of get monetary reparation given that the country is largely relying on foreign Mm -hmm. investment and support. That's harrowing. Yeah. So how does that make you feel about current day practices of so many countries trying to establish, you know, like concrete borders, don't let anybody in, restrict immigration, you know, movement of people across different country lines. Does that, you know, alarm you that in the 70s when this was happening, the fact that people could dissipate out of Cambodia Mm -hmm. allowed them to survive? And now people are trying to set these concrete boundaries to prevent distribution of immigrants. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, so... I do a lot with regard to immigration history, um, and to go back to the first project, I mean, I think that 
The United States has always had, you know, vacillated between closed door and open door mm -hmm. uh, immigration policies. And, you know, during the period of World War II, it was because of a very exclusionary um, immigration act, the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, which was the most restrictive in U.S. history, that uh, European Jews could not find refuge in the United States. They were actually, like, barred as per a quota, right? So uh, there's a great book by David Wyman called The Abandonment of the Jews, which uh, looks at that particular policy. Hitler himself actually praised U.S. immigration policy as a template for what the Nazi regime should be doing legislatively. Um, so. But I think that uh, with regard to the contemporary debate, uh, there is always a strategic amnesia with regard to like what had come before. So when we talk about those who are being detained at various borders, those are actually refugees. And mm -hmm. like the most alarming you know, dimension of this is that uh, the very term refugee has been evacuated in favor of illegality, mm -hmm. et cetera. So this right. is really like kind of unprecedented what's happening during uh, this administration. It also has an impact on Cambodians and um, Vietnamese and other refugees who came to the United States during the 70s. Um, in particular, many of these individuals did not get naturalized citizenship. Naturalized citizenship is very expensive, mm -hmm. and you assume as a refugee, if you come to the United States, you're granted citizenship. So a lot of individuals who had, you know, maybe committed uh, what was called an aggravated felony, um, which could range from writing a bad check to, um, you know, gang violence and murder, they're being forcibly deported back to their countries of origin, even though they've lived in the United States their entire life and don't know the language, culture, etc. Um, this is also an issue for uh, South Korean adoptees. Mm -hmm. So you assume through adoption that there's a naturalized citizenship afforded. That's not the case. And so if you make a mistake, you do face deportation. Really? Yes. Wow. So, and this is not um, exclusively because of the Trump administration. In actuality, this policy was begun in 1996 with Clinton. And the Obama administration actually pursued these deportations. But, you know, I think that putting all of this together, the problem is that immigration law and refugee policy is so complicated mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that most Americans kind of just, they, they just think of things in terms of illegality or people who are undocumented. Yep. And they um, tend to focus most on like what's most immediate, right? It's like, too binary. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I've just described is a very complicated, <laughs> you know, kind of immigration history that is not very translatable. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's certainly, um, I've been involved in deportation cases where I, you know, testify about the com complex history that brought refugees into being, but it's quite alarming because you actually send people back to countries where they were refugees. Yeah. So they actually left the country because they feared persecution, and so you're placing them back into those spaces. So I'm curious, given that these uh, refugees are ignorant of what it would take to become a naturalized mm -hmm. citizen, do you think that that ignorance is a result of negligence on the part of uh, the government or an intentionality of not like mm. necessarily revealing what the options are to you know limit whatever citizenship I don't think that it's um, like kind of uh, part of a resettlement process to deny individuals access to naturalization mm -hmm. but I think that most Americans 
gosh, I'm making this blanket statement, <laughs> don't even understand what type of citizenship exists in the United States, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. they don't know the residency requirements, things like that. So, you know, I always ask students, like, what type of citizenship is afforded, you know, like, how does one get citizenship? And people say, well, you're either born here or not, which is one way to think about it. So we have jus soli mm-hmm. citizenship. But um, for these communities, I think that it's a combination of education and access to the citizenship processes. And if you're a refugee who comes in with $420, that used to be the allotment, and you're placed in communities that are very impoverished, the idea of seeking out a lawyer and then going through a naturalization process, which will now cost $20,000, is extreme. Mm -hmm. And I think that most people who came to the United States and they became permanent residents never thought that they would be deported, Mm -hmm. right? So citizenship is always a bit elusive. You don't really realize it until it's taken away. So I think that to answer your question, it's, you know, it's a combination of, you know, the fact that there aren't resources to kind of go into communities to, kind of, to educate parents, this is actually what you should mm-hmm. be doing, right? There's also the language translation issue, but then there's also the sheer cost yeah. of the process. So let's go back a little bit more into your work specifically, mm-hmm. which seems to embody this type of curation of, I don't want to say memoirs, but pieces of work that have come out of people who went through an experience and kind of trying to piece together a story and a narrative, mm-hmm. a truth connecting thread that ties together all the pieces. But you've now extended that further, you've taken that work, because a few years ago you wrote the book on Cambodia and, and genocide, and now I think you're currently working on a book about how that's occurring in the Middle East as well? Well, oh, so... <laughs> am I going too much? <laughs> no, I am so impressed. So so actually, like, what's interesting about an academic career is that the longer you're in it, the more you get to do what you want, right? So, so I, I was, like, super... Um, let's say I was a bummer, right? Like, you know, like, and it's, it's a great thing. So anytime there is a genocide day and they need a Cambodian Americanist, they just call me, right? So I filled that niche. And then I also interviewed, like, a, you know, part of the book was on hip hop artists, right? Mm-hmm. So there are three Cambodian American rappers and I know all of them, right? Like, and I'm the least hip hop person. So I've got that niche. Um, but um, what, in terms of a connecting theme, like um, it's very personal. So my first book about immigration and naturalization was really about my mother, and because she's Japanese and she went through naturalization as a process, so did I. My second book was really kind of in response to conversations I had with my brother of all people, mm-hmm. because we were both Cambodian Americans, but then not. And I'm working on two projects. One is on. Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan through what I call the military mundane. Um, And that's really about my father. So, you know, what was really remarkable for me is that looking at uh, U.S. conflicts abroad, what is oftentimes stressed is the sublimity of military conquest, right? Like the the long-range munitions used, the explosions, etc. But when you talk to military personnel, it's really about the boredom. Mm-hmm. right of uh, kind of being stationed abroad and so I'm looking at um, that project through military comics and video games why 
I like comics and I like video games. I like nice. playing Call of Duty. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I like to shoot zombies, all these things. And I have every platform, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I can use a, like a PS4, a Wii. I had a Wii U at one point that sucked, and then um, an <laughs> Xbox. So, but I actually uh, looked at the ways in which, like, these first person shooter games were constructed. And a lot of them is about, like, you know, kind of replicating the mundane nature of military experience. Um, and part of the other, you know, kind of thing that prompted me to this is every time I would give a lecture about the Cambodian American experience, which delved into Vietnam, military veterans would be present. Mm -hmm. And I found that they were incredibly generous and kind. And one of the failures of my field, Asian American studies, is to entirely dismiss military experience as legitimate as somehow like not humanitarian, et cetera. So that's that project. And then I'm also looking at um, environmental degradation and the use of Agent Orange and other, you know, kind of uh, weapon, chemical weapons um, and their connection to disability. And that was, again, a personal engagement because I've had all of these surgeries. And part of the reason mm -hmm. is because I have early onset osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. Um, and I grew up around military bases. I have pretty much every autoimmune condition connected to being around chemicals. Really? Exactly, yeah. And um, this took a very difficult turn for me because I had mentioned that in the discussion we had previously that my father, who passed away from stage four brain cancer, had a glioblastoma that was the same as John McCain. Mm -hmm. And even though a number of veterans have this same brain cancer condition, you know, exactly. Yeah. It's not recognized by the VA as having any connection to mm. Agent Orange. That's really difficult. Yeah. Because if the numbers are telling you that this frequency is too high. It is, well, and it's one of those things where these are uh, veterans who have lived to a certain age, mm -hmm. right? Like, so they're all around the same age of John McCain and my father. Um, and so that's like the fourth project. Um, but I am delving more into the Middle East because of the yeah. recent conflicts that have occurred. There. I will say it was difficult to try to, in one sentence, encapsulate <laughs> all of your work. Because, I don't know, for us it's really easy to say, like, oh, you study one receptor on a specific right. cell type and look at its function and <laughs> development. But, yeah, I was reading all these different projects and I was trying to identify that one narrative. But it makes sense if it's personal. These are things you're interested in. You've gotten to this point in your career mm -hmm. where you can look at these questions that intrigue you, and they do have societal relevance, I think, and cultural relevance. And well, thank you. I mean, I but I do think that, like, in teaching, like, that's where, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, kind of in a movie like Dangerous Minds or something like that. <laughs> um, but I find that even though what I've narrated is seemingly exceptional and unique, it's not. Because, like, students... Um, and that's the best part of teaching is, you know, seeing people who will be your future colleagues. They also have these like wonderfully personal, amazing experiences, mm -hmm. right? Like so case in point, when I teach Asian American literature, I go into immigration. I had one student. His name was Jerry and he worked at Mohegan Sun as a bouncer. And he told me that he was born in the United States when his parents were on vacation from China. And so he was kind of an anchor baby, but then he was brought back to China, even though he was an American citizen. And he had this very complicated history, and he had been named Jerry after Tom and Jerry. <laughs> so, and just hearing him articulate that and put it together and see how significant it was, 
was so meaningful. You seem very humble, though. Do you think your humility comes from, like, pursuing a career, kind of disavowing the parental pressure to pursue a career that your parents didn't describe as... <laughs> I don't know. It's a tough question, but... Yeah. Like, I do think your work is very meaningful and powerful. Mm-hmm. And Oh, gosh. That is so generous. So, I mean, I do engage a lot of hashtag humble brands, right? <laughs> but... Um, I think it's because I've worked every job. So case in point, when Mm -hmm. I was in college, my job was handling pizza complaints for Mr. Gaddy's Pizza, which is a really bad pizza company Mm -hmm. in Austin, Texas. There are 34 stores. So my job was to sit in a call center, and if you had a problem with your order, you would call me and yell at me. Like it was 200 people a night. And I just had to lie to you. And I couldn't do anything outside of give you $3 off. Mm-hmm. So you could say, I ate your pizza, got really sick, and vomited all over my you know, mom. And I would say, I'm so sorry that happened. Here's would $3. you like $3 <laughs> off your next order? And that was the worst job ever, right? Oh um, so I worked there. I worked at the Gallup Poll. I worked as a waitress. Um, and I mentioned during grad school, I bartended. I actually started out as a bouncer. Mm-hmm checking IDs, and it's amazing how people are afraid of tetanus, so I had a stick with some rusty nails, and anytime a fight broke out, I would just threaten people with tetanus, and they stopped fighting. Um, so even my first year... It's you, genius. <laughs> it is, right? Like, people are so scared of lockjaw, yeah. right, of what they think lockjaw is. Um, and even my first semester, or my first year here, I was bartending full-time which was great i missed the money mm-hmm. i i really miss just having a lot of cash like you know <laughs> um but i do think that it's because i've had these other positions um that and i also really funded my own education mm-hmm. so what really kills me now is the cost of education right like when i was in school i don't think this was your experience I was able to work full-time, live on my own in an apartment, and still afford books and tuition. So I use this as a, as kind of a teaching moment, but depressing moment. So in 1992 to 96, I went to UT Austin. My cost each semester with books and tuition was $500, right? So, um, so $4,000 for years. Exa- yeah, exactly. So you could actually afford to wow. take that victory lap. You could backpack in Europe. You mm-hmm. could kind of explore. You could actually mess up, right? Yeah. So so when I started out as a physics chemistry major, it didn't really uh, resonate. But part of the reason it didn't resonate was because I would go bowling all the time. So <laughs> I would get off work, and I was very upset at all the customers, so I would bowl for six hours. <laughs> just get that stress out. <laughs> yeah, just get the stress out. And I was a really good bowler, right? Like I had, at one point, a 220 average. Um, that's oh, my bragging. Wow. And I thought I'm going to be in the PBA. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but um, part of the humility is I had failed dramatically as an undergraduate student. I, I almost flunked out. Um, but I was able to, you know, kind of get back on track in part because tuition was so affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I look at students now, graduate students who are, you know, you're dealing with like an imaginary that I didn't have to deal with in terms of job market, et cetera undergraduates are dealing with a considerable debt load so i actually have to think about ways to like kind of empathize and make their experiences for lack of a better word like affordable and reasonable Mm. so i think it's because i did work so much outside of academia that i kind of understand that this is a privileged space 
I mean, who gets to be an English professor? Like, yeah. seriously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm not like in your respective disciplines where people, I mean, it's great to have the one sentence because you're actually helping people. I have to spend a paragraph describing like the relevance. Mm-hmm. So, But I mean, like, it's helping in a different sense, in a psychological and emotional mm. sense, is the work that you do. Well, ours may be biologically oriented. That does not mean that you're not serving a very important, even arguably medical purpose in um, some way. You know what I'm saying? Um, so there's a, there's a friend of mine, this is my bragging point, uh, Viet Nguyen, who won the Pulitzer in, in 2016. And it was really remarkable. He's a very good friend, good mentor. He was an Asian American Studies professor at USC. And I just knew him as like, kind of someone who was like me a jerk when we drank bourbon right Mm -hmm. and then he writes this novel it wins the pulitzer he becomes a macarthur genius i mean he wins everything right Mm -hmm. but uh one of the things that he said that resonates for me is that he shifted from academic work to creative work because he realized that his parents couldn't read his work Right, like so, he had gotten to the point where the jargon had become so overwhelming. Yeah, it's inaccessible. Exactly, right. So I think that in teaching, I'm able to be a bit more accessible. But in my own academic work, that's a struggle because my parents can't read my work. Yeah, and that's that's difficult, right? So I think that like what we need to do uh, within the humanities is actually engage more public-facing work so that what we do is legible and kind of its significance emphasized. Yeah, I just actually had that same issue. A paper that I was working on with another graduate student in our lab was published yesterday. And so I sent it to my family. Thank yeah. you. Uh, I sent it to my family and you know, my mom was like, got through paragraph one, onto paragraph two. <laughs> and then 10 hours later, I had no response. I said, oh, did I lose you on paragraph two? And she was like, I think so. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, you really want to share this moment and the success with the people close to you and the people around you in your you know support system and it's hard and it's discouraging when you can't do that yeah. it's well and it and it becomes so rarefied that you know it is not surprising that people in the state ask well why are we funding this institution when like the work doesn't make sense to yeah. me right like you know and i think that graduate school and academia forces you to engage a language that is like so abstracted Mm -hmm. that you're not really able to kind of communicate. And this is a profound shift. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s and 60s, you did see like kind of more public intellectuals out there who are able to translate the work. And, you know, I'm always struck that um, like I I very rarely get interviewed. So this is great. (laughs) But the one time I did get interviewed that forced me to kind of, you know, narrate things in a much better way was when I was interviewed by Jesse Ventura, of all people. I think we were just looking we were at that yeah, clip. Which was right hilarious yeah. because... <laughs> He's an intense guy. Yeah. He's intense, but it was, <laughs> it was so funny because, like, my dream is to be interviewed or meet people from the movie Predator, right? So, <laughs> so it was like Jesse Ventura. Like, I'm just so close. Like, I've met Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh-huh. Jesse Ventura. Ooh. But he actually asked questions that were quite informed. I mean, I was really surprised. Mm-hmm. And he's just you know, kind of uh, this jock figure in your ear. But what I appreciated about that interview was that my dad saw it. Uh, this was before he, he got really sick. And that was the proudest he was. Yeah. 
because he could understand what I was saying. Wow. And it was Jesse Ventura, so he knew <laughs> Jesse <Yeah>. Ventura was. <laughs> the celebrity tag as well. Exactly. But no, no, yeah, no. It, I think that you're right, that this type of communication to the public is lacking. This whole uh, trend of podcasts are blowing up, mm -hmm. and I think that that's tremendous with communicating any body of primary research or exploration to the public sphere. Um, well, and it's a skill. I mean, it's uh, like I find that podcasts um, have actually really kind of pushed the relevance, but I also wish that more faculty would see that this is the type of work you should be invested in, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Right. So one thing I wanted to ask you about when you were talking about analyzing, uh, you know, Cambodian politics and the feelings of Cambodian people as kind of on some level an outsider from an American mm -hmm. perspective and you don't know the language. Do you feel Cambodian? Like, because, yeah. yeah. That's that's yeah. so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and, and uh, like my husband actually, who's a professor here, and he's a great person to interview. Yeah. Um, he's in English, but he does work on anti-fascism. And so his first book was on the 30s and 40s. Second book was on anti-fascism in the post-war period. So our former dean, Jeremy Teitelbaum, said it best, is like to be an expert on fascism right now is like being an expert on smallpox after the outbreak has occurred. <laughs> so he's, and he actually does a lot of public work, right? Because mm -hmm. he's uh, in demand and he's, you know, pretty funny. But um, so he was with me my first time I went back to Southeast Asia. So I wasn't born in Cambodia, I was born in Thailand. So when I went back, that was a profound anxiety because I am mixed race. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've always felt that because I mean, I have huge feet and huge hands. I'm much bigger than most people mm -hmm. in Cambodia. But um, when I was in Cambodia, the feeling was like the air actually um, felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, even though like, and it's kind of Southeast Asia, like I felt like I belonged at least in a physical sense. Mm -hmm. But I was really worried about how I would be read by those quote, in country. Mm -hmm. Um, but the the part that just kind of was the the most amazing thing that happened was that we were at a bus stop and I was with my husband, and <clears throat> so this is going to sound strange, but like it was a bus stop uh, or it was like we were on our way to Encore Wat, the bus stops and then the merchants come on and they try to sell the tourists like bananas and things like that. So they try to give my husband a banana or some fruit and then I got the spider, right? And so, and it was just this big, I mean, a huge spider that was crawling on me, like that I was supposed to eat. And um, and so the question is, why do you raise that? And the answer is, the person who had put this on me said, "Oh, you look Khmer." Mm -hmm. And I felt like, oh, you can actually see that I am Cambodian, right? Like right. so, because my husband, who happens to be white, mm -hmm. right? I he was the been, tourist. He right? was the tourist who got the banana, and I got the spider. Um, but I found that it was through this work that. That more, more like Cambodian Americans and Cambodians said, "You look my, where are you from?" So the, you know, an exchange occurred, even though we didn't necessarily speak like the same language mm -hmm. with regard to Cambodians, and that was amazingly important. Yeah, 
because I didn't realize that being adopted and growing up in these spaces had really forced a disconnect with that identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Must have felt like some sort of validation. Absolutely, right. yeah. yeah. And it's difficult to kind of go into because it sounds, it's you know highly problematic that it would be that exchange. Um, but I think that the access that I had to various communities right. was always predicated on like kind of announcing I am an outsider for these reasons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I still have a connection. And my original name before Kathy Jean Schlund Viles was Lisa Poonpan Piao. Mm-hmm. So that is actually like a Southeast Asian name. Mm-hmm. When I went on the job market, my advisor said to identify yourself as Asian American, you should have that as your middle name. And I said, that is officially stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it would look made up. So. It, it, ten names yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's long enough as yeah. it is. So your interest, I guess this was now kind of wrapping things up. So your interest mm-hmm. in pursuing English and this Asian and American studies, you know, you had the flexibility to pursue physics, chemistry, mm-hmm. and then shift to this other field. But like you were saying, undergraduates nowadays with the cost of tuition and the pressure and the speed in which you need to find a major and a career, what sort of advice do you have with you know undergraduates who are entering college to explore their first year and then narrow, you know, how do people navigate this academic field now? Well, I think that, um, you know, that is really difficult. So, yeah. you know, as somebody who teaches courses that fulfill content area for a gen ed, most of my students come in with that in mind, and I absolutely understand it. So to answer your question, I'm going to go to a faculty like kind of need sure. and then shift to the undergraduate. So. One of the biggest concerns I have is that faculty are woefully inaccurate in their assumption of what tuition costs. So somebody in my department actually thought that um, students spent three thousand a year. Wow! And yeah, I'm I thinking, that, uh, I don't know how that happens. Like, <laughs> it's a profound disconnect, but it actually explains so much in terms of the attitude about advising. So if you have that sense that um, you know it only costs that much, then what you're going to do in terms of your book order is you're going to order as many books and that's going to add another financial cost. So mm-hmm. I've shifted my teaching. I teach actually a 200-person lecture where everything is PDF and online. Yeah. So I think that a lot more education, strangely enough, has to be done with faculty because that influences the type of advising they give students, right? So if you know that misadvising will add thousands of dollars to somebody's debt load, maybe you'll be a bit more thoughtful in that. Um, But for undergraduates, I think that, you know, one of the things that I would like to stress because I see it in first-year students is that not everybody is going to go into the sciences, right? You two have succeeded in that, but a lot of people kind of come in because of those like pressures and they think like, I'm gonna be a doctor, et cetera, and they simply do not have the skill set, right? I didn't have that skill set, I didn't have the commitment. So I think that what I can do is to actually offer students like resources so that you don't have to be depressed that this is the only option for you, right? Because mm-hmm. not everybody is going to be a doctor, but one of the things about the humanities, everybody says, oh, what am I gonna do with the humanities? Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at graduation success rates, people with humanities degrees, 85% make as much as people from the School of Business, wow. right? 
Um, so the job is really to kind of see what else, like to actually talk to students and say, okay, if you're not going to be a doctor, mm-hmm. what else are you really interested in? And to kind of encourage, like, if you are good at a particular subject, there is a job for you there. Yeah. But it takes a lot more time in terms of one-on-one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think those reputations of certain fields need to be brought down. I yeah. think the whole, you know, the only successful careers are A, B, and C. It's not true. Like you're saying, the, the world is filled with different things to explore and yeah. different niches to exploit and different career paths to, to well, pursue. But I think that this is also where re-educating the faculty right, matters right. because I think that especially, you know, the, the question is, why is it that people in English think that the only thing you can do is teach or go to grad school? Well, that's because of the advising that you're giving students, yeah. right? And I don't want to necessarily say everybody has to have a, you know, like 500 jobs like I did, but I do think that we need to see that this is a very different period for both undergraduate and graduate students, mm-hmm. right? So I had the luxury at UMass Amherst to be part of a union, right? And my husband was the uh, president of the union, so I supported literacy as the first president, <laughs> you know, as the first lady. Um, but one of the things that, like, really struck me about unionization is that uh, graduate students in particular are very vulnerable. So, like, the question is, how do you mentor them so that they achieve a work-life balance while accommodating for the fact that they are facing something very different? And I think that people tend to go back to their own experience as a mentoring frame, when that is woefully like you know disconnected from reality yeah so that is my job (laughs) (laughs) no it's awesome um before we go you've met arnold schwarzenegger i had that little factoid how did you meet (laughs) so um just as a like governor of california and by meeting i just shook his hand you know like so but you know i guess like carl weathers is also in predator and then the actual predator you met no, I no, haven't. Oh, oh, oh. I need to meet. They're on the list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. They're on the list. But, um, but my husband's uncle um, actually was thrown into a prison because he assaulted Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, bodyguard during the filming of Predator. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Some Willie. Wacky oh stories that yeah. <laughs> surrounded you in the family. <laughs> so yes, by by meeting. See, I, yeah. I just uh-huh. you you thought that like we had an engagement. I just shook his head. I see. So. All right. Thank you so much for really joining us. It. This was really you. great. Thank you everyone for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram, and email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at the Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.